Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, praise the Lord. Let's get to it. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it to Colossians chapter 2. Verses 13, 14, and 15. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love for you to use the Bible that is in the little rack in the chair in front of you. And you can keep that Bible if you don't own one as, uh, as our gift to you. If you just happen to f- have forgotten your Bible this morning and you're using that Bible, usually we discourage you from just sort of upgrading if that Bible's better than yours. But because we're as Will said, in particular, as we do every Sunday, but on this Easter Sunday, celebrating the resurrection. You know what? On us. If you need to upgrade, take that bad boy and keep it <laughs> as yours. We have been working our way through uh, Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and next week we'll pick back up and look at Genesis 39, but I thought, we thought it would be wise on this Resurrection Sunday to to step out of Genesis for one Sunday and to choose a text of Scripture that is like a little Bible in and of itself. These three verses that we will read and stare at and think about and ponder and digest are one of those verses, one of those passages in the Bible that encapsulates really in short form the whole message of the Bible, the whole message of the gospel, what it means to be a Christian. So in just a moment, I'm going to read these verses and then pray. Now, we're just going to have scriptures up on the screen, but let me just give you the outline. We're not going to have it up on the screen, but I know some of you get antsy if you don't know where I'm going. So we're giving it to you right now, but you're going to have to write it down if you're a note taker. So just giving you the handles to hold on to. We're going to look at these three verses that I think explains what it means to be a Christian, what explains explains what God has done in Christ. It explains the whole message of the Bible in, in just short form. Here's the, the outline. We're going to see the problem. We're going to see the solution. And then we're going to see the results. So one, the problem. Two, the solution. And three, the results. So let me pray. Or let me read and then let me pray. And as I read, know that this is God's holy and completely true and without air, divinely breathed out word that has been superintended and carried through the centuries and now delivered unto us. God has written these words for us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, 14, and 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray and ask the Lord to show us wonderful things. Oh, Father, we, we come to you this morning because of what Christ has done and because the Holy Spirit 
has made us alive to see and savor Jesus. Father, I pray that as we stare at these words that you inspired your servant, the Apostle Paul, to write, that you, that you would stir our affections for Jesus. But we know this is Easter Sunday in the Bible Belt, and we are prone to be distracted. And I pray by your kind grace that this morning as we stare into the beautiful face of our risen King Jesus, that believers in this room would be renewed and, and that we would be freshly in awe of your grace. And I pray that my friends that are in this room that are not yet trusting in Christ, and surely there are some in a crowd this size, I pray that by your sovereign mercy, you would take dead and unbelieving hearts that entered this room and that you would make them alive and that you would give them eyes to see and a heart to believe and ears to hear the beautiful message of the gospel and they would turn from trusting in themselves and they would turn in faith to Jesus and that you would give them life whereby then they can have faith in you. And I pray that you would do all of this for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. And as we gather this morning, we are so thankful for other gospel-preaching churches in our city. Lord, we thank you for Fountain City Church and David Baum, the church that we helped to plant just a few months ago. We pray for your grace to that church as they spread the gospel in East Highland and in this city. We thank you for St. Andrew's Presbyterian and Westminster Presbyterian and my my brothers there that are pastoring those churches that I am so grateful for. Thank you for Calvary Baptist and my, my dear friend Jeff Struker and my friend Keith Coward at Christ Community. We pray for your grace to be in those pulpits, in those congregations, and for you to draw people to yourself through these churches, through the proclamation of your word all around our city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, I think these three verses are a sort of mini Bible in in a little short form here. And we see in these three verses a problem, a solution, and the results of the solution. First, the problem. The Apostle Paul, who is writing this letter to a group of people, the Colossian church, which is, by the way, much smaller than the group of people gathered in this room, He's telling them that there was a problem with them before they were made alive by Christ. So we see there in the first verse, he says, And you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So this word trespasses is just another biblical word for, for sin. He is saying that the people that are hearing this letter... And the Holy Spirit is writing this through Paul, and it's intended not just for these Colossians, but for for all of us to read. He's speaking really about all of humanity here. He's saying that you are dead in your sin before God acts on your heart. And he adds on that little phrase there, the uncircumcision of your flesh. What does that little phrase mean? It's just another word to talk about how they are dead. So in the Old Testament, circumcision 
was this sign, this symbol that God used to mark off his people, to, to be a kind of cutting away of the flesh, to mark off the Jewish people from amongst all the other nations to show that these were his people and they would become the, really the people through whom the New Testament church, Jesus would come and, and God's people were, were birthed. And so when he talks about the uncircumcision of the flesh, he's talking not that the Colossians were circumcised, but that their hearts, it became kind of a New Testament symbol for our hearts not being cut away or, or still being being dominated by the flesh. So really to be dead in sin and in the uncircumcision of the flesh is really talking about the same thing. Now, today when you go to grandma's house for lunch and she asks you what the preacher talked about, don't scratch your head and say circumcision, strangely enough, on Easter Sunday. Don't do that. Okay, I just wanted to explain that to you, that what Paul is saying there when he talks about uncircumcision of flesh, he's talking about a heart that is still dominated by life before Christ, by sin. And he's saying that this sin has, has done something to us. It has rendered us really dead, completely unable. Okay, so most of us, I think, can all agree that we all are, are sort of sinners. We, we aren't all that we could be. But what does this talk about being dead in sin? One of the things that you must understand to rightly understand the message of the Bible the message of the gospel, the most important news in the universe, is to understand the severity of what sin, Paul calls it here, trespasses, does to us. Here's an example, just to kind of give you a, a picture in your mind. Imagine I was a waiter at a restaurant, and I brought out two steaks for you, right? And right as I was about to let you choose the two steaks, a fly landed on one of them. Now... You know, if you're a young guy that just got out of ranger school, and I think we've got a couple of them in here, you'd, you'd eat both of them right away. You wouldn't care. I've been there. But, but you, would choose the, you would choose the steak that didn't have the fly land on it, right? Right? Because even if it's just a little tiny corner, and even if the fly, you know, it, it, it hasn't necessarily caused bacteria to spread and like the Ebola virus to, to root up in that steak right before you eat it, you still, you'd take the uncontaminated one, right? Wouldn't you? Unless you're just super, super hungry. Well, imagine now if you are like a, a servant in the palace of the king, right? And you're, you're, you're taking these two steaks to put before the king. And you see that a fly lands on one. And the king sees that a fly lands on one. Woe to the servant who puts a stake before the king where a fly just landed on it because the king has a high office and we can't give him a stake that a fly landed on him. By the way, boys and girls, do you know what flies do every time they land on something? No, I'm not going to get into it and ruin your lunch. Right? Here's the point. Is that even, even the slightest, because I think all of us kind of, ah, okay, I'm not a good guy, but I'm not as bad as that joker down the street who's a complete knucklehead. But here's that when we, when we view it that way, when we view sin and life and our sort of personal less than optimal performance merely by comparing ourselves to other horizontal people, we're not judging it rightly. Do you see that, that trespasses and sin don't gain their severity because of how they compare to the people around us, but it gains its severity because of the holiness of the one that the life is being presented to. And it is clear if we had time to go through the rest of the Bible, and I won't do that to you this morning, but we see that God is utterly 
holy. And because he's holy and righteous, sin and rebellion, even if it is from our perception the slightest in nature, cannot be tolerated before the beautiful, holy, eternal God. And so God, to stay that way, must rightly judge that sin. And his judgment for that rebellion is Death. This is the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, our, our first father, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread, contamination spread to all men because all sin. So we are all by nature really children of Adam. Whether it is obvious and flagrant and public or whether it is internal and self-righteous and moralistic, we all, to some degree, shun our noses at God and rebel against Him. And that's what Paul is saying to these Colossians. And when he says the you there, he's saying not just these Colossians, but this is, again, if we had time to work through a doctrine of what sin has done to humanity, we would see that that applies to everybody. People are not born neutral. We are born by nature rebels, dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. Now, at this point, before we move on to the solution, you may have two objections, and I think they're valid ones. They're things that we need to think through. The first objection is, hey, Brad, I get you, but I'm not that bad of a guy. We kind of handled that just a moment ago when we talked about how we tend to judge our performance or our relatively small rebellion against God against the worst guy down the street. But okay, let's concede you're not that bad of a guy, but I have a question for those of us that think that way and think that we're okay with God or not really dead because we're not that bad of a guy. My question is, when does bad get bad enough, right? And, and where is the line? And here's what I've noticed about my own heart and every other human being that I've dealt with that thinks that way is that conveniently the line of bad enough is always just on the other side of us, right? You know, like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a wicked guy, but I mean, I mean, I mean but, but God knows my heart. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of okay, right? And I mean, we never put ourselves on the wrong end of that equation. It's a, it's a man-centered shifting scale. So I think if we just think about it, we realize, again, we need to realize that the severity of, of mankind's rebellion doesn't gain its weight by how it compares to everybody else, but it gains its weight because of the holiness against the one it is committed. I share this analogy a lot. If, um, if, if um, somebody in the front row just jumped up here and slapped me right in the middle of this sermon, that would be, that'd be super awkward, and you would never forget that Easter morning when some guy got up off the first row and slapped the pastor as he was preaching. You'd probably never forget that. And depending on the size of the guy, I might slap him back. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but it'd probably end there. There wouldn't be that many consequences. But if the President of the United States, or if we were, you know, in medieval England and King Arthur was up here and you broke through the barricade and you slapped the king or the leader of the free world in the face, look here, bro, you're going to jail and you might get your head lopped off. So do you see same offense, 
committed against a different person. Sin gains its severity, not because of the horizontal consequences, but our rebellion against God, even though it's very small, gains its severity because of the magnitude and the dignity of the one against, it is, against whom it is committed, and on an infinitely greater level than the President of the United States or the King of, you know, medieval England. We're talking about the holy, eternal God of the universe. That's why, friends, even our relatively seeming horizontal, from our perception, small sins require God's eternal judgment. And Paul says that that's where we are. So one objection, you may see I'm not that bad of a guy. I don't, obviously, I don't think that holds up. But I think, I think, a, more, I think a more thoughtful objection one that I'm more sympathetic with than I think even the scriptures are, but that we should, we should think about, is our objection might be, okay, I, I get that. I get that I'm a sinner. I get that the whole world is, is in this helpless estate apart from God. But why would God allow sin, even in the first place, to enter the world knowing that it would cause such destruction? I think that's a valid question. And I think that we're left with three potential answers to that question of why God in the first place would even allow sin to enter in. And I think we have three potential answers. The first potential answer is that God is, is not good. He's sort of capricious and, and evil and mean-spirited, and he's allowed the world to spin out of control, and he's not good. Obviously, I think most of us, if not all of us, I'm, I imagine, would, would realize that that's just not tenable with the Bible and with reality as we know it. God, in fact, is good. So, Option number one is to say that God is not good. I think, don't think that's plausible. Option number two, and I think unwittingly many people sort of, a, sort of subconsciously hold this, and I think it's just biblically wrong. They would say, well, God is good, but he's not in total control. And their view of the God of the Bible is kind of like he's sort of Luke Skywalker battling Darth Vader, sort of in the, in the last, I don't know, Star Wars I, they came out with so many of them now. Totally confused me. When, when I was a kid, it was one, two, and three, and all of a sudden it became four, five, and six. Blew my mind. But we sort of see this dualistic version of God who's on kind of equal footing with evil and Satan, and he barely wins at the end. And there are lots of stuff that happens between the beginning and the end where God sort of loses out to evil. That's a dualistic view of the universe that sees God as good, but not in total control. And friends, I don't think that the, that's true. I don't think the Bible gives us that picture. And so the third option for us to answer this question of why God would even allow sin to enter in to kill people in their trespasses so that he would have to rescue them is that God is both good and in control and has eternal and good purposes even if they are hidden from us in this life. And friends, that is mysterious. It's hard to fathom. But I think clearly it is our only option to know that somehow, someway, God has deemed for the display, for the supreme display of His glory to allow evil, sin, and even our rebellion so that he then, through Christ, would save a people for himself against the backdrop of a fallen world, that he would cause the diamond of his redemption to stand more majestically against the black velvet of sin. And I think, even though that is hard to wrap our minds around, is the biblical option. So that's the problem. 
that we are dead in sin. What is the solution then that Paul gives us as we continue to work through this? He says there, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, verse 13, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And you see the solution there. In shorthand, there, just one short sentence that tells us what God does. It says that God made alive together, made us alive together with him. So God has done something. We were dead, and then God acts on his people. He makes them alive together with him, meaning Christ. So let's just review. We were dead, and God here, according to this text, brings us back to life. So something has to happen to us from the outside before anything can change on the inside. So, so follow Paul's logic. Follow the logic of the, of the Bible. This is the logic and essential to understanding what it means to be a Christian and essential to understanding the gospel. Admittedly, this seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because most of us grow up in a sort of culture that, that teaches that if you will just do better, if you will just try harder, then there comes kind of some point where God generally sort of thinks you're better than other people and will deem you worthy of his grace. But the only, the only problem, by the way, I think that's the default view of the majority of the people in the world. If I'm just kind of better, if I realize that my life has gone off the rails and I try a little bit harder, then at some point, and, and conveniently, it's always, the point is always just at, you know, it's always in favor of me. You know, that line's always on the other side. That God will be pleased with me and will give me his grace. As if I do something, then God is obligated to sort of meet me with his favor. But the problem is, friends, what did we just say? The problem is we are dead. Dead people can't do stuff. And now I know a lot of y'all watch zombie movies and stuff like that. And we got some walking dead faithful in here. But you guys know that's, that's fiction, right? I know it was filmed in Georgia. And I know some of you kind of think maybe there's a possibility. Right? Dead people can't do anything. Now, we're, we're alive in one sense, right? We, but when the Bible says we're dead in sin, it means in as much as we have any capacity to please God in and of ourselves... We can't do it. And the Bible tells us that just just plainly. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. This is what Paul writes. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh. That's just like a, a biblical phrase for saying that you are still dead in sin and in the uncircumcision of your heart. For the mind that is set on the flesh, it's hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We can't do it. We're backed into a corner. We, we can't try harder. Outwardly, we may give the appearance of trying harder, but we'll find that if, apart from God's gracious intervention, we'll see that even what seems to be efforts on the part of people to improve themselves is really just sort of self-centered, self righteousness we apart from God acting on us when we are dead in our sins cannot please God friends I'm backing us into a corner because the Bible is backing us into a corner we are utterly helpless do you see that you have to see that 
So then how does God do this? What does God do with dead people? Well, we read it in the text. He makes them alive. And how does he make them alive? On what grounds? Where's the power of him making them alive? He says that he makes them alive. Don't miss these three words. Together with him. Meaning with Jesus. So God makes people alive with and through the same power that he raised Jesus from the dead. Which is why we're gathered here today. Because there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 1 verse 3. This is the apostle Peter writing. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Not according to our effort, not according to our our, our you know, desires to clean ourselves up, but according to his great mercy, he has caused us. Something from the outside acted on us. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how does God make people alive? Through Jesus and his resurrection, he makes them alive because Jesus is alive. A picture of this, I think, in the Bible is found in John chapter 11, where Jesus has three friends and their siblings, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. At the beginning of John chapter 11, Mary and Martha come to Jesus and send word to him that their brother Lazarus is very sick. And because they believe that Jesus has the power to heal, they're wanting Jesus to come to Lazarus' bedside so that he can heal him. And Jesus sort of puts them off, kind of like, ah, yeah, I'll get there, I'll, I'll get to you when I get to you. Mary and Martha are a little confused. They go back, and sure enough, Lazarus dies. And just to give us sort of emphasis that Lazarus is actually dead, the Bible says that he, in the King James, he stinketh, right? He's dead. He stinks. His body's decomposing. And Jesus, then they come back to him. They're hysterical. Like, Jesus, if you would have come... We could have prevented this because they thought he had power over sickness, but they didn't quite realize that he had power over death yet. And Jesus says to his sisters something incredibly important for you to understand, for us to see. Even before the end of the chapter, he says, he says, oh, dear sisters, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he may die, yet he shall live. And then Jesus saunters over to the, to the grave of Lazarus in complete control of everything. And when Lazarus is dead, unable to agree or do anything to make himself alive, unable to obey Jesus in any way, Jesus goes to outside the tomb and he doesn't say, you know, Lazarus, if you would have taken your medicine, it would have been better. And now as penance for that, I need you to say these prayers, sign up for this little ministry and start doing stuff for me. And when I see that you're serious, I will, you know, help you out, live a better life. Is that what he says? No, Lazarus is dead. He stinks. 
And Jesus goes outside of his tomb and he says, Lazarus, get up. And because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and because Jesus has power over sin, death, and all of its consequences, Lazarus gets up. And he is made alive. And the first breath that Lazarus breathes is faith in Jesus who made him alive and gave him the ability to hear him. Friends, that story is in the Bible to give us a picture of how God saves every one of us. Whether you're a convicted felon, strung out on drugs and crack or whatever, whether you are steeped in some sin that you cannot shake, or whether you're a little six-year-old kid that is born in the church and doing all good things, but is trusting in yourself, every single person is saved in the same way. We are dead in our sins. And Jesus, when he determines to save a man because of the will of God, says to them, get up, and he makes dead people alive and he gives them faith and repentance whereby then because they are alive they turn from trusting in themselves and they put their faith and hope in the risen king jesus and he can do that friends because he's done it himself because he rose from the dead and that's what paul is saying is the grounds of our resurrection of our being made alive because Jesus is alive and let's just zero in because of course I think it would be helpful for us to do just it's an Easter Sunday let's just think about just the resurrection and his evidences for the resurrection I mean just when you just if you're a skeptic in here oh I I, I, I want to speak to you. I want to have a conversation with you. I wish we could just sit down in a chair after church and just, just talk about your objections. But you may be objecting to the fact, like, this seems silly, that God would deem to save the world by becoming a man, God the Son, and then allowing it to crucify him and then rising again. Yes, it, it, the, the, the Bible itself admits that this, this message is, is foolishness to the world. And I, I understand that it seems foolish to you, but just think about just the evidences for the resurrection, even just internally in the Scripture. I'm not saying that these things prove it, but I think it points us to the plausibility that, that what the Bible says is true. First of all, later on, just a, a couple decades, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul, our Paul, worship leader Paul, not our worship pastor, not the Apostle Paul, he just alluded to it in 1, 15 when, 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that Christ is risen. And in that same chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus appeared to over 500 people. He's writing it as a historical document saying, go, check, go ask James, go ask Cephas. They're, they're out there. Another just, just eyewitness of the, the truthfulness of the resurrection is that the, the first people to witness Jesus' resurrection were women. Now in first century Judaism in first century Palestine, if you wanted something to be known as sort of having the weight of plausible testimony, you would never write in the story a woman being somebody who saw Jesus because a woman in that culture, her testimony wasn't even valid in court. And so you'd never do that if you're writing uh, something that you're kind of making up or is the legend of a man. It wouldn't make sense. And then you just see in the span of just a few weeks, the testimony of these disciples who were discouraged after his death. But now, because of his resurrection, it ends up an explosion of a new world order where all 12 of the disciples, except for John, end up giving their life and martyrdom for the message that they are proclaiming. 
we see just an incredible witness of the reality of the resurrection in the scriptures. And it is because of the resurrection of Jesus that God makes us alive. Now, you may object to this and you may say, wait a minute now, Brad. Are you saying that if a person is a Christian, that they had nothing to do with their salvation? No. It's not what I'm saying. It's what the Bible is saying, right? I'm just repeating what the Bible is saying. And let's admit it, friends. Let's admit it. There is something in us that doesn't like that, right? There's something in us that doesn't like that. Because we are prone to want credit. We're prone to view it negatively as if God is less wise than we are in making that decision and where the wind of his Holy Spirit will blow. Remember when Jesus meets Nicodemus at night in John chapter 3, Nicodemus asks him, how can a person you know, know you? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is just incredulous at this. And he says, how can a man be born again? Does he crawl back inside of his mom and come back out? I mean, he's just, he's flabbergasted at this. And Jesus says, no, it's the wind of the Spirit. It's the will of God that blows. And because of God's gracious love. He causes people to be born again. Friend, I think if you will see this rightly and biblically, and if you think about it for a minute, you will come to see that this thing that we call the gospel, which is a word that means good news, because it is all of grace and nothing that we do really is good news. Because if it were somehow dependent on me sort of finalizing it, then, then when would my effort be enough? And, and then when would we look at the span of humanity and say, you know, that guy's too far gone. Like there's no way that he can, he can make himself right with God because he's absolutely lost. But the good news of the gospel, friends, is that God justifies not middle-class Americans who grow up in the Bible Belt, not just them. God justifies not just kids who go to VBS and Sunday school, not just them, but God justifies the ungodly, the Bible says. So no matter how far away you may be from God, this morning, friends, there is hope for you. And the good news is, is that you don't need to look down deep within yourself and muster faith. You need to look away from yourself to God who alone can make you alive. And if you, and you may say, well, how do I know if he's doing it? Friends, if you are hearing these words right now and they are making sense to you and they are convicting you and if you are wondering whether or not that is you, friends, dead hearts don't tend to worry about where they stand with God. God may very well be, and I believe it's evidence that if you are even contemplating this right now, realizing that maybe this is your only hope, friends, friends, that is evidence that the wind of the Holy Spirit Spirit is blowing through the dead room of your heart and making you alive. And you don't need to look down deep within and try harder or commit or resolve. You need to look away from yourself and get up just like Lazarus and breathe. And that first breath is faith in Jesus. Friends, that's good news. That's great news that God makes dead, wicked people like us alive. 
You say, what about faith and repentance? Are they necessary? Oh, friends, they're very necessary. But they come as a result of new life. New life doesn't come because of your faith. How can dead people have faith? God gives faith. That's what Ephesians 2 says. He says that we are saved by grace through faith, and it's a gift of God, lest any of us boast. So we conclude then with the results. So we looked at the problem. We're dead. We're hopeless. We need something to happen to us from the outside. We see the solution. God becomes a man. He, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal preexistent Son of God, God in all of His holiness, co-equal with the Father, becomes a man, lives a perfect, sinless, obedient life, then lays down that obedient, righteous life on the cross. And God then, instead of judging His people, He judges Jesus on the cross. Jesus becomes our substitute And he bears the wrath of God. And because he's infinitely holy and because he's completely innocent as a man, he is sufficient. Like His person is sufficient to absorb God's judgment for all those that ever trust in him. And Jesus dies. And then he rises again. And now because he's alive, he can call us and make us alive just like he did to Lazarus. And now then, what are the results? This is what Paul concludes. He says, because of all this has happened, Because you've been made alive. End of verse 13 there. Back to Colossians 2. It says, He has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So God's law, God's holy law that he gave his people and that he really wrote this law just in the universe as as just this ingrained code in every human heart to know that we were disobeying him. This law, even though it was good, it had this aspect of it that condemned us because we rebelled against God. And God says through Paul that what happened on the cross is that we weren't just made alive, but that he canceled the record of debt or the condemnation of our disobedience that was rightly against us. He says that he canceled it. Another way of saying that word cancel there would be that he literally he blotted it out. Now, if you are under the age of 30, You have no idea about what I'm about to talk about. But back in the day, we used to have, before they had computers, this stuff called whiteout. (laughs) And if you were writing a paper, they had had these, like, archaic machines called typewriters. Dreadful. I mean, you you had to put a piece of paper in there, and if you made a mistake, you you had to white it out. That's the picture here. And by the way, there's another crazy thing. I'm just a little history lesson here for you boys and girls under the age of 30. When you had to write a paper, you had to go to these places and check out books. These places were called libraries. <laughs> crazy. I think there's still a few of them around. I don't know, whatever. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus, because of his perfect life, he bears God's wrath on the cross for us. So Jesus is not just dying as an example of God's love. 
Jesus is bearing the wrath of God for us. And because he's fully God and perfect man, he can satisfy it. He takes our sin and it gets even better than him taking our sin. He gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, one of the most important verses in all of the Bible, says that for our sake, he, meaning God the Father, made him, meaning God the Son, to be sin, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Martin Luther, the great reformer, calls this the great exchange. One of the sweetest verses in all of the Bible. Jesus takes our sin and he bears the punishment that should have been ours. And because he's eternally holy, he can satisfy it. Like he has enough holiness to match all of the sin of his his people and extinguish it more than enough. And then he turns that punishment and wrath of God into favor and now gives us his righteousness. So when God looks at us, we are not just alive in a neutral state, but we are now alive, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And now we have a new heart that wants to obey God. Friends, that's an indicator of whether or not you're truly a Christian or not. Maybe you came into this room And you think you're a Christian, but you're still just doing whatever you want. Friends, you may be deceiving yourselves because when God makes somebody new, he takes their old heart, he gives them a new heart, he gives them Jesus' righteousness, and then that heart starts to beat to want to obey God. Perfectly in this life? Of course not. But we want to... We want to obey God in our life and we start to delight in obeying God rather than being angry at God for the law that he calls us to. And then he triumphs over all of these authorities. Who are these rulers and authorities that he's triumphing over? It's not just the Colossian you know, government. He's talking about the spiritual forces of wickedness that want to piggyback on God's justice and his law and to mock us for failing it. And all of our life they've been accusing us and putting us to shame. And now because of what Jesus has done, removing our guilt, giving us his righteousness, he has silenced them. And he triumphs over them and he shuts them up and he gives us his righteousness. My favorite pastor, what would it be Easter Sunday if I didn't at least say something about Charles Spurgeon? I know you, we're getting to the end here and you guys, oh my gosh, is he, is he going to mention Spurgeon? Is he gonna? I don't have a quote just off the top of my head. One of my favorite Spurgeon quotes is he says that on the cross, Jesus, listen to this, he drank our damnation dry. And because of what Jesus did, his people must, they shall go free because they are now alive and they have a heart that beats for him and they, wanna, they want to enjoy the greater beauty and pleasure of serving God until that day when he makes them fully and finally right. Friends, friends, that is the gospel. That is what you must believe. Now, I know that maybe in the culture that many of us grew up in, um, it would be fine to, you know, I haven't said anything too controversial, and kind of close your Bible and pray, and let's go to Grandma's house and enjoy the pot roast. 
but I would not be serving you well if I didn't challenge you and ask you, do you, do you believe that? Is that where your hope is? If you don't, if that's not where your hope is, the, the Bible has some very, very hard and clear things to say to you. It's not like, oh, you just kind of float back into general middle American life and, you know, maybe, maybe we'll see you again in a couple months or maybe, maybe you, you're okay. This is just for that really zealous group of people. You know, I heard Crosspoint was a little intense. God, it was. Jeez, oh my gosh, I'm not coming back there again. Uh, I'll just kind of float off and do my thing. But friends, I, I just want to be clear with you that if that hasn't happened to you, if you have not been made alive, you don't just kind of float off into general neutrality. The Bible says very clearly that the wrath of God still remains on you. And your only hope for that wrath of God being removed and turned into favor is being made alive by God through Jesus. And you say, well, how do I do it now? Right now, even, see our nature, we want to click into, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? You don't have to do anything other than to trust in what has already been done. Do that even now. Friends, do that even now. This this may be the only time that some of you hear this message. This may be the only time that I and my inadequacy and my my feeble ways can even communicate this to you. And and I plead with you, like plead with you, do do that even now. Turn away from yourself and look to Jesus and say, Lord, I don't understand it all. I've got a million questions. This guy that's yelled at me for the past forty five minutes hasn't answered them all. But, I, like, there's something here that resonates with me. Like, I know I'm broken, and I can't, like, I can't fix myself. I can't do it. So I can't, like, I, I can't resolve hard enough. What do I do? Friends, you need God to bring you back. And if you are hearing this, and if this is, this is in any way, like, like generating any Life in you, friends, I believe that's the wind of the Holy Spirit making you alive. Now, now here's what you need to do. You need to, not, not in all of your like, complete understanding, not in you figuring out rationally what's happening to you now. You need to look away from yourself and you need to put faith in what God has done in Christ to bear your punishment, extinguish it, carry it away, rise again in victory. Now to give you life, you need to look to Jesus and be made alive. Dude, like put your faith in him. And then, hey, let's shuck it down, man. Let's have coffee. Let's meet and let's answer a thousand questions. But you, like you must, you must trust in Jesus now. And I I plead with you to do that right now. And have the record that stood against you canceled and have every wicked voice internal and external silenced 
and follow Christ into true and eternal joy. In just a moment, we're going to receive communion as is our custom on the first Sunday of the month as a church family. These little pieces of bread and these little cups of juice represent Jesus' body that was broken for us and his blood that was spilled for us. Christians have been sharing in this communion meal for centuries as a way of remembering what we have just talked about, that Jesus died and rose again for us. If you're a Christian and you're from another church, you're welcome to come to this table with us. If you're not yet trusting in Christ, I encourage you not to receive, not because we're trying to be harsh with you or single you out or isolate you or embarrass you in any way. No, it's because we love you and we don't want you to confess something that you don't truly believe just for the sake of social conformity. Friends, come on. Don't do that. And if you want to speak further about what it means to be a Christian, we'd love to do that with any of the pastors or anybody that you know to be a Christian. Friends, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to this table. Our custom here at Crosspoint is in just a moment I'm going to pray and then we'll all stand. The worship team will come back and lead us. And you, when you are ready, you can go to the usher closest to you, take a piece of bread and a cup and hold the elements. We'll sing a song or two, and then Will will come back and lead us to receive together as a, as a family to remember what Jesus has done. I invite you, if you are a believer in Jesus, to come to this table and to revel in the death and the resurrection of our King. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to your table, we thank you for the beautiful power of the gospel. We know that it is the power of God to save, and it is our only hope. For my brothers and sisters who are believers in this room, would you, as we prayed at the beginning, afresh open our eyes to the wonder of the glory of the resurrection and our salvation. And for my friends in this room who came in not trusting, would you even now give them a new heart to believe? And would you, Lord, this is their only hope, would you... According to your great mercy, make them alive and awaken them so that they can see and trust and follow and love your Son. Lord, would you do that? In Jesus' name, amen.